Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDScast, episode 5. In this episode, we are joined by Tess Hatch. For those of you that do not know Tess, she is a vice president at Bessemer Venture Partners, which is a venture capital firm that manages over $5 billion. Tess is originally from the Los Angeles area, but traveled all the way to the University of Michigan to study aerospace engineering as an undergrad. Following graduation, Tess did two six-month internships at SpaceX and at Boeing before deciding to attend grad school at Stanford University. Tess joined Bessemer in 2017, where she is now vice president. She focuses on frontier technologies, including commercial space companies such as Rocket Labs and Spire. Tess continues to be involved at the University of Michigan as a guest lecturer for Aero 285 and as an advisor for undergraduate students. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tess Hatch. Welcome, everyone. Today, joining us is Tess Hatch from Bessemer Venture Partners. Welcome, Tess, to the show. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to talk to you today. Uh, for those of you that do not know Tess, she will kind of go through her background briefly in a moment. Uh, but she is a University of Michigan alumni. She then went to Stanford for her master's degree and is now vice president at a venture capital firm. So for those of you that are interested in space and the business of space, I think this will be a really interesting talk. And so we're hoping to have a good time here. I'm going to introduce our co-host as well, Alex Samra, who is currently a junior slash senior. Alex, what do you officially call it? Junior-ish. Uh, so Alex is studying aerospace engineering and then is also doing his minor in entrepreneurship. Uh, many of you know him. He is going to be on the e-board next year as the external vice president, which is similar to kind of my job as vice president this year. So we're welcoming him on the show as well today. Alex, I'm going to let you go ahead and get started and we can kind of talk to Tess and start walking through kind of her background and how she got to where she is today. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess a little bit of context. Uh, context. So Tess and I met uh, as a result of her 285 talk. I was super interested in what she had to say. Um, I'm in the Entrepreneur's Leadership Program here at Michigan. So I've been interested in entrepreneurship and business and venture capital, uh, specifically how that applies to engineering for a long time. Uh, so Tess and I got the chance to talk and um, it went really great. I've been applying to a lot of venture capital firms. I think that that's a great place for an engineer to apply their skills as well. Um, and it's something that was really interesting to me as far as kind of looking at out of the box ways to, uh, to hold a career in an in, in engineering related field. Um, so yeah, Tess, I am really excited to get into your specific journey, obviously a little bit about me there, but um, let's get into U of M. So Obviously, college is where all of our careers kind of see their beginnings, um, and I'm really curious what your perspective is on your undergrad curriculum, um, anything that stood out to you class-wise. Professor Washabaugh's blimp class was, was simply amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful that my first aerospace engineering class consisted of me designing, building, and testing a subscale blimp. I, I, I remember... Uh, late nights in, in the lab with my team coding the, uh, the Arduino and, and sealing the envelope. I don't know if either of you have taken the class, but it definitely convinced me to continue studying aerospace engineering. Uh, I also remember, remember most uh, the countless hours I spent in office hours with Professor Durasami, Gerard, Goldburn, and all of the others, and how much the professors at the University of Michigan really cared about their students. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely in engineering, I think, and, and with Professor Was- Professor Washabaugh, you see that um, very much hands-on education and uh, a really awesome opportunity with that blimp class and something that I was really excited about as well. Um, it's it's the, the best way to get someone excited, you know, is to put them hands-on in a project, especially one so applicable to their major. Um, so I guess um, other than that, are there any things that you did in undergrad, um, either curricular or extracurricular, that you would say like positively impacted your career? Um, and then any suggestions, you know, anything that you would have done differently looking back? I enjoyed being a member of, of S3FL's Emburst. Uh, it stood for Michigan Balloon Recovery and Satellite Testbed. So we launched mm-hmm. payloads into the stratosphere. They performed various experiments and it would tweet its location. So after initiating the flight termination unit, which cut the string between the balloon and the experiment so that we could cover the payload, uh, we'd, we'd go off and find it. Right. Uh, programs outside of aerospace, because the University of Michigan has so many of those. I joined a sorority. I was part of Tri-Delta and I enjoyed living in the house with, with the other girls. Uh, and my my roommate and best friend was uh, in the she studied musical theater, so I made sure to go to all of the the school's music and dance and acting performances. Oh, yeah. U- University of Michigan has the best musical theater program in in, in, oh, in the yeah. country, and and oh my gosh, they're so talented. So so I really uh, really enjoyed the performances. Yeah, yeah, I always go to the free musical theater performances because, like, I, I mean, I don't have a ton of extra money as, as most college students are, but, I mean, I love musical theater. I didn't know about the program either until one of my friends was like, hey, like, there's a free showing tonight, um, you know, so obviously that was a really great thing to get involved in. Um, there's so much going on in Michigan, and it's really great to take advantage of it. I think um, that can that can have all sorts of benefits, you know, in, in uh, developing, uh, especially in college. So, yeah, uh, great to hear a little bit about that. Um, I'm curious then... Um, you know, coming out of undergrad, there's a lot of uncertainty, and, and especially now, there's even more uncertainty than before. But um, if there's anything that you can um, remark upon in your transition from going right out of undergrad into into working for SpaceX and Boeing, um, any anything that stands out just as far as like your thought process, how that how that process went for you? It's so daunting graduating from school, something that you've been doing for the past. 18 years of your 21 or 22 year old life and it's it's really the only thing you've you've done full-time and now you need to 180 degree translate to something else full-time and and the biggest piece of advice is whatever you choose to do it's the right decision and just choose something and then make the best of whatever you choose don't look too far out maybe five years at the most since most likely things will change Hindsight is twenty twenty, so you'll never know if that first decision set you up for success for the second or third, but you'll gain invaluable experience along the way. And, and what I'd advise is to seek out and try to work with simply amazing people in your organization. That's what I would recommend over-indexing for. Those people, your, your managers and your peers, I mean, they're going to shape you in the way your professors did. So make sure those people around you are, are simply amazing. Uh, personally, you you asked about my story. Uh, as you you said, I was choosing between two very different companies. Uh, SpaceX, which is this young, sexy, fast-moving rocket company, and Boeing, a larger company, uh, a large, large aerospace company, but it had a variety of, of products and roles. And I couldn't choose between the two, so I asked for six uh, for two six short month internships at both. 
and ultimately I went back to school. So proving that I didn't even know what would happen over the course of that year. So, so no way would I have been able to, to plan any longer than that. But I look back and, and I'm really grateful for both of those experiences. I, I, I learned about integrating satellites with the Falcon 9 rocket, working in, in product emission management at SpaceX. And I learned about metal 3D printing, uh, working yeah. as a structural design engineer on a satellite bus at Boeing. Yeah, yeah, metal 3D printing is super exciting. Definitely one of um, my technologies to look out for, uh, just in terms of the fact that it'll revolutionize everything in the future, especially in the aerospace manufacturing supply chain. Um, but yeah, I, I'm curious. So you said, you know, you spent a year at those companies, uh, six months at SpaceX, six months at Boeing, went back to grad school. What was the thought then going back to grad school? Because obviously you applied prior to the end of your time uh, your short time in industry, um, so to speak. So what was the um, what was the driver behind going back to grad school? Did you wish that you had gone to grad school instead? Or were you just realizing that industry didn't really hold everything um, that you wanted it to for your career? I figured out that as much as I loved the engineering side of things, and 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 being a technical engineer, those experiences taught me that I, I liked the business or the customer facing side of aerospace better. Uh, mm. and, and therefore, I needed to gain more skills and, and more tools since I, I really only had theoretical uh, aerospace background. So, so when I was exposed to VC at Stanford, everything really came together. And now I use my, my technical engineering skills and background as an investor in commercial space. Sure. All right. Well, uh, super great. I guess, was there anything that stood out to you? Like when you realized you liked the customer facing side aspect of it more, was it like working, you know, on your roles as mission manager, like anything specifically that stood out to you that you really liked about that job? Um, that, that kind of made you decide like, Oh, I need to go back and gain more skills. I think the biggest difference is when you're a responsible engineer for a certain part of, of a product, whether it's a satellite or a rocket, you know 100%, maybe 110. I mean, you're, you're furthering that one piece when perhaps you're in a more uh, business or sales or business development or, or any of those positions, you know a little bit about every part. And, and I can make the analogy to ones who get PhDs. They, they are the subject matter expert in that, in that, in their thesis and whatever they're researching. And I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't think of one thing to do my PhD in or one thing I wanted to right. be the responsible engineer for. Uh, I like learning a little bit of, of lots of things. So right. so uh, I'm delighted that I get to do that now as an investor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can totally agree. Obviously, that's really what, what pushed me as well in the direction of business and entrepreneurship. It keeps things interesting for sure. Um, you know, and, and me as someone who's very passionate about new technology and entrepreneurship, I mean, how do you pick a, a new, most exciting technology in aerospace, right? You can talk about aviation or like uh, drone and aerospace technology all day, let alone, you know, all the things that are going on in space. So there's really a whole lot going on and, and it's a great way to be involved, to get into business and, and venture capital. So hopefully this program also helps uh, some people who might be on the edge or might be thinking about business uh, look into it at least, uh, but maybe also make that transition as well. Um, so... Yeah. So now let's transition over into the Stanford part of things. So you went back to master's school. Um, obviously, going to Stanford would have been in-state for you. 
Um, I'm really curious what your perspective was of like going to college in state. Um, you know, do you think that was a good choice for graduate school? Like, would you suggest that that um, going to grad school in state would be preferable to out of state? Well, I'll answer the question of, of first going to Michigan out of state. Right. And being originally sure. from Southern California, uh, it was quite the weather shock <laughs> for me. I had never experienced yeah. snow before, and boy, was I cold. So uh, I, I chose Michigan because of the aerospace program and, and wanted to study aerospace. And I chose Stanford because of the aerospace program, wanted to study aerospace. And it was in California where it doesn't snow. Sure. So uh, that definitely that definitely drove my uh, my filter. I only applied to graduate schools in California. However, after I went to the accept, accepted students visiting day, I just fell in love with the campus and the department and my fellow classmates. Uh, so I knew that day in February, it was actually February 14th, it was Valentine's Day, that I would just love Stanford. And I did. Those two years were, were the absolute best. Because Michigan set me up for such a strong foundation in aerospace engineering, I was able to waive most of the first level classes and in their place, I took a number of classes in the business and design schools, uh, as well as the management science department within the engineering school. So I got to take classes with titles such as entrepreneurship from diverse perspectives and creativity and innovation. And, and I'm so grateful for grad school because while I was getting a technical aeronautics and astronautics master's, I was able to round out my education with these classes. Yeah, that's super great. Definitely. I can I can relate to that in that, you know, coming up with credit for me, I realized I could do something, you know, other than aerospace and, and entrepreneurship has been the defining, you know, factor in my career. So I'm, I'm glad I got involved with the CFE here and um, started on that path, uh, you know, because I haven't really looked back since, you know, it's, it's been a very great opportunity to be a part of. But um, I guess one thing that that really comes to mind, um, what what was your thought towards like going in between schools, like coming from Michigan and then going to Stanford? Um, you know, a lot of kids think about doing SUGS because of the convenience. And I know we talked about this in our conversation, um, but I, I just want to hear some of your perspectives on going to the same school for undergrad and then into master's versus switching it up, um, you know, for a little bit of a, a fresh environment. Um, what, what do you think of the pros and cons there? The huge pro is doing SUGS. You get your undergrad and your master's in five years versus really anywhere else where you change universities, it takes six. So four years undergrad and two years master's. Huge pro. Uh, another pro is, is you know the school and the department and the professors, and you probably have friends, and you know where you're living, and it's comfortable. I think the con is, is that second pro. It's you, you miss out on all of these other opportunities to meet new people and new professors and take new classes and, and just gain a different type of experience. So, so while, yes, it took me a year longer, I'm, I'm really grateful that I was able to add this, this other experience to my, my, my resume and, and just shape myself further. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think that's a, a great perspective on that. Um, and and, and then I guess now transitioning over into like getting into the world of venture capital. So when was it first when you realized that that venture capital was an interesting um, career path for you? Because obviously, you know, 
going into masters for aeronautical astronautical engineering you know you're still probably thinking maybe i'm going to go work for an aerospace company or, or weren't at least totally sure um what kind of drove that decision or at least the consideration um, for the world of venture capital for you absolutely and and before that i was thinking of your other question a bit more and uh a funny but very, very real consideration for me is I couldn't survive another winter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess a lot of <laughs> I just couldn't do the snow that. anymore. I really couldn't. Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I need the sun. Back to your, your question. <laughs> Discovering venture capital. Uh, so, so I'm in grad school. I'm getting a technical degree and, and, uh, one of the motivations behind going to grad school is I wanted to learn uh, more about the business side of technology. Mm. So, so in addition to the classes I mentioned taking earlier, I saw a fellowship for engineering students that were interested in entrepreneurship and venture capital. It's very similar to the ELP program that you just mentioned being a part of Alexander at, at Michigan. Uh, at Stanford, it was named after the VC DFJ which honestly at the time I didn't know what either of those acronyms stood for. But I knew that DFJ had invested in SpaceX, so they must know what they're doing. And, and I was honored to have been selected along with 11 other engineering graduate students. And, and during the program, I learned that VC meant venture capital, which uh, invests in early stage startup companies and helps them grow into market leading businesses. And DFJ stood for Draper, Fisher, Germanson, which are our three man's names. They created the firm and was one of the handful of, of amazing VC firms on Sand Hill Road investing in, in, in such startup companies. And through the fellowship, uh, the professor of the program, Tina Seelig, and partner of DFJ, which is now named Threshold, Heidi Roizen, convinced me of all the amazing, deeply technical things one can, can learn about and invest in, but as an investor in the ecosystem rather than as an engineer at a single company. As an investor, I can learn and invest in space and drones, but also autonomous vehicles and, and alternative food technology. And, and the list can continue as long as one's imagination can imagine. And, sure. and that's what I do now at Bessemer. Uh, after graduate school at Stanford, I joined Bessemer Venture Partners as an investor focused on investing in, in deep or frontier technologies. And I love uh, investing and, and working with space companies such as Rocket Lab and Spire, drone companies such as Drone Deploy and Iris and Impossible Aerospace, autonomous vehicle companies such as Phantom Auto. And, and I really want to invest in technology and people who believe as strongly as I do that frontier technology will develop solutions for society problems. Excellent answer. I think um, that really describes for me as well my interest in in getting into venture capital. I mean the the ability to support you know more than just one technology is it's definitely a great privilege. Um, you know, for those of us that don't want to narrow down our skill set in one area or haven't found all of our skills kind of focused in on one area, it can be a great alternative to kind of look at business. Um, and at least consider something like venture capital as as, uh, as an option. And obviously, for me, even I I want to be flexible. You know, don't want to um, t tell myself I'm going to do venture capital and and you know kind of only do that one thing. Like obviously, it's one of those decisions I can make. But who knows where I'll be 10, 15 years from now? As um, you're saying this, Alexander, I just want to note only two percent of companies are venture backed, and and not all of those should be. 
there's there's so many alternative sources of funding where it's it's similar sorts of jobs. I mean, accelerators and incubators, you have the same sort of skills. Uh, you can get you can get uh, bank loans and debt, which which they need to determine who to give to as well. Um, but there's so many alternative sources of of funding, and VC is a very small asset class. Okay. Well, also, yeah. Thank you for that good uh, little addition there. Um, yeah. So other than that, I think um, just to give a little bit more context to our our discussion um, coming up about all the space and investments that you've done. Um, so applying your mindset coming out of engineering, you know, applying this whole idea of like design, build, test, like iterating, you know, uh, around a, a problem to find a solution. Um, how do you apply that to the world of venture capital? Because obviously, you know, um, there are a lot of people out there that say like you know, after undergrad, after school in general, you kind of throw everything you learned out the window. But I like to think and, and for most people that you find a way to use those skills, right? So I'm curious what you think, um, you know, has been the transition between going from engineering school to actually working in business, um, how those skills are still useful to you. I, I, I use some of the technical skills occasionally. Um, never am I really in the weeds, but definitely back of the envelope. Do the physics of this, does, the, does that work? Is, is that realistic uh, in, a, in a first pitch meeting? Uh, I think the biggest difference between engineering and, and venture capital and in a culture wise is, is engineering culture is all about the team. While perhaps surprisingly VC, culture is fairly autonomous. We have a partnership, and, and what that means is um, engineering, you have to be collaborative. Everyone works on a team to find the optimized solution. In VC, every investor goes off on her own to find opportunities to potentially invest in, and we have a partnership to discuss those opportunities and, and help one another think through the investment. But most of the time, I'm, I'm off on my own, uh, which is something I really like about the job, but isn't for everybody. A great saying one of the one of my uh, amazing partners at Bessemer, David Cowan, says is this job's very easy to do, but it's hard to do well. It's really easy to, to run around and make investments, but it's really hard to support those investments and help them grow into unicorns. Uh, unicorns is an industry saying for a company valued over $1 billion. And, and these companies disrupt society as we know it and hopefully make a, a lot of money in the process. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's uh, that's also good to know um, for our listeners who aren't aren't particular aren't particularly familiar. That's a huge um, terminology in in the world of engineering, or sorry, in the world of entrepreneurship and venture capital. Um, I guess uh, another thing I'm curious about: um, what are some of your shining moments in coming into VC? Obviously, like um, I personally have had a lot of doubt going into engineering, even, and then going into venture capital. I mean. Going into a, a realm or a discipline where you haven't, you know, had a ton of skills or ton of experience, you can feel like you're out of your depth. Um, so I guess to be more specific, what were the times where you realized, you know, venture capital is really working out for you? Um, if there's any stories that you can share uh, with respect to that. The feedback cycle in venture capital is really long. You, you really, sure. it takes, gosh, uh, if you invest at an early stage, five plus, usually seven to 10 years for a liquidity event, which means you're, the investment you made, that company either went public or got acquired. So right. completely honestly with you, I have not had any liquidity events. So I haven't had that 
shining moment where I, I, I was like, I'm really good at this. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I really don't know. However, there are there are less tangible milestones along the way. So for example, sure. if you invested at the Series A, and the Series B was a really successful raise. It was an up round. It raised at a higher valuation. Or even smaller ones. Like my, my company just signed a massive Fortune 100 Enterprise logo. Like there's there's little things along the way. Their their revenue is growing. Their team is growing. Their culture is phenomenal. There's there's other things where where it helps. Ultimately, um, I, I I think the the what I'm most proud of is all of the investments I've made and and the CEOs that I work with are just fabulous people and I love working with them. They're they're I honestly I probably text and call them more than my family and friends. Uh, so it's, it's life is too short to work with someone you don't enjoy working with. And I really, yeah. really love working with them. And they're just great people growing amazing businesses. Yeah, super awesome. Uh, definitely. That's one thing I realized as well, um, kind of in my decision making process is like, um, one thing that I really enjoyed most about working uh, with some of the project teams on campus is getting to meet all of the people in leadership of these different project teams and, you know, learning about their backgrounds and uh, the technology they're working on. Um, and, you know, all of the moving parts in each project team, the structure is obviously very similar. You know, we interact with all the same uh, facilities um, and a lot of the same people on the university end, but it looks very different in the implementation. And I think it's always fascinating to kind of hear from the unique perspectives of, of the people who are in charge of those very uh, often hectic teams. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess uh, now we can get a little bit into um, space stuff. Uh, I really as with most people want to hear about Rocket Lab. Um, I guess if there's anything else you want to add in, in terms of background um, that we didn't ask that, you know, might provide more context that you can think our listeners might be interested in. Obviously, you know, they don't know a whole lot about you. Um, if there's anything else that you think might offer a context to the space discussion that we're about to have, um, feel free to chime in. Well, I'm as ready as you to, to jump in and, and chat as, as much as you'd like about Rocket Lab. The, the okay. context, though, is, is the space industry is open for business. As, as launch frequency and access to LEO, as launch frequency increases and, and access to LEO and GEO therefore increase, I'm just amazed by the little time and capital it takes for entrepreneurs or students to design, build, and launch a satellite into space. So I really look forward to a constellation of satellites providing us global ubiquitous internet connectivity or, or uh, landing the first woman and second man back on the surface of the moon. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, that's a really great way to sum up everything. That's super exciting, uh, you know, about where we're moving with space. So with that, uh, let's talk about Rocket Lab. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's everyone's favorite underdog in the space industry. Um, they've been doing super well. Um, I, I haven't um, been keeping up super closely with them, but as far as when I heard their talk at Space Vision, they had not failed a, a test launch yet. Um, so that's really, really crazy. Um, you know, as you look at the aerospace industry, kind of unheard of. You know, you almost don't want to believe it, but here we are. Um, you know, so I'd love to hear more about your perspective first person. You know, like going into Rocket Lab Investment, how'd you hear about them? You know, how'd they approach you guys? And, and what were the first thoughts when you heard about them and, and heard their pitch? Well, the Rocket Lab Investment actually predates me. We made it before I joined. Uh, but I'm happy to, to share lots of information about what the company is up to. Uh, so, so I'm assuming the audience is aware of Rocket Lab's 11 out of 11, like you said, 100% success 
launches. We've had 11 launches deploying 48 satellites into space. Uh, in 2019, we were the fourth most frequently launched launch vehicle. Uh, we were behind China, Russia, and SpaceX, but we were in front of Europe and Japan. So I will share the most recent and exciting news about Rocket Lab. Uh, those three things are recovering the first stage of the rocket, our satellite bus photon, and winning NASA's Lunar Pathfinder mission to the moon. So first, recovering the first stage of the rocket. In early March, Rocket Lab successfully completed a mid-air recovery test. Uh, it, was, it was a maneuver that involved snagging an electron, which is the name of our rocket's first stage, from the sky with a helicopter. I, I, oh my God. <laughs> I did not, when I saw that in your talk, I did not believe it. Oh my God, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like that, that totally blows my mind. Yeah, that. if you guys have not seen that video, go look it up on YouTube. It's really oh, amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah, like we, we all laughed when we saw in the talk because we were like, there's no way that you could fly a helicopter over to, you know, a falling piece of a rocket. But uh, yeah, I'll let you continue on with the story and uh, maybe give us some insights as to how that's possible. Absolutely. Well, well, the video in my talk was obviously fake. However, now <laughs> since we've done it, I have we have photos that I'm, I'm happy to, to share with you guys for the podcast. So so basically, um, we had one helicopter that dropped the the dummy first stage, but it, it was a first stage. It was over the open ocean in New Zealand and a parachute deployed from the stage before a second helicopter closed in on the descending first stage and captured it mid-air around 5,000 feet. And it was using a specially designed grappling hook to snag the parachutes line. Um, and after capturing the first stage on the first attempt, uh, the helicopter safely carried the suspended stage back to land. And, and, and this test is the latest in a series of milestones for Rocket Lab as the company is working towards a reusable first stage. Now, we're often asked why we're pursuing a reusable first stage, and, and most people think it's about driving launch costs down. For us, the focus is actually on launch frequency. If we don't need to build a new first stage for every mission, we can move faster and launch more often to meet our customers' needs. Yeah. So secondly, I will tell uh, you guys about our new satellite photon platform. And, and it's called a platform because it's not a single satellite design. It's a family of spacecraft that we can mate, that we can make to meet our customers' unique mission requirements. So, so before customers were bound to these tight parameters of a set spacecraft, but now with Photon, we can build around their specific mission, uh, whether that mission is a constellation, whether it's, it's Earth science or a technology demonstrator, or a mission back to the moon. This allows Rocket Lab to take care of the spacecraft bus, mission design, launch, and ground. So our customers now focus on what matters most to them, which is their payload, their sensor, and not all of the, the other. We're, we're handling space, they're handling their data. And lastly, in February, Rocket Lab was selected by NASA as the launch provider for a small satellite mission to the same lunar orbit targeted for Gateway. Mm -hmm. Gateway is an orbiting outpost astronauts will visit before descending to the surface of the moon in a landing system as part of NASA's Artemis program. You're familiar with the, the recent astronaut yeah. application for, for Artemis. Did either of you apply? No, no. I, I 
I, there's still a lot more to happen for me before I'm ready for that. I shamelessly applied. I agree. A lot more to happen and low chances of being accepted, but, but, uh, but definitely would love to, to be selected. Um, yeah, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> so, so this capstone experiment and, and capstone stands for cislunar autonomous positioning system, technology operations and navigation experiment, quite the mouthful. Mouthful. Yeah. Mouthful. Um, it's expected to be the first spacecraft to operate in a near rectilinear halo orbit around the moon, which means it will rotate together with the moon as it orbits Earth. And in Capstone, will demonstrate how to enter into and operate in this orbit, as well as test a new navigation capability. And this data will help to reduce navigation uncertainties ahead of future missions for Gateway as NASA and international partners work to ensure astronauts have safe access to the moon surface. So this satellite will be launched uh, on, on Rocket Lab's Electron from our second launch complex, which is in Wallops, Virginia, on, on NASA's flight facility. And after the launch, Rocket Lab's Photon, which uh, I just talked about as our satellite platform, will deliver the capstone on a ballistic lunar transfer. And then Photon's Curie propulsion system will allow the satellite to break free of Earth's gravity and head to the moon. So, so after launch, Capstone will take approximately three months to enter its target orbit and then begin a six-month primary demonstration phase to understand operations in this unique orbit. And this, uh, this mission is targeted for early 2021. Wow. That's, yeah, a lot of really exciting stuff. Thank you. You said lots of the listeners love Rocket Lab, so I wanted to yeah. provide you guys with uh, the latest and greatest and lots of fun yeah. technical detail. Yeah, no, it was really great to hear about all of that. I mean, I personally haven't been able to, uh, you know, get all of that information myself, so I'm really happy to, to stay up to date. Um, I guess uh, kind of going in the same vein of new, you know, exciting companies, uh, are there any other space technology or, you know, aviation, you know, aerospace technology companies that have got you excited um, or, or even technologies that, you know, you're looking out for? So 2020, I've been spending a ton of time in the alternative food and alternative animal product space. So uh, a handful of months ago, I, I placed a small investment in a plant-based lamb alternative. So it's similar to Impossible Foods, but rather than for beef, it's for sheep. And it's called Black Sheep Foods. And and it um, there's tons of reasons as to why people should should have a plant-based diet, but they still like the taste and the feel of meat. Uh, some of the reasons are the decrease of carbon emissions and the carbon footprint, and, and other reasons are health. Uh, red meat's not as great for you as, as plants are. So, so in addition to... Um, Black Sheep Foods, we, we are, we're large investors in Forever Oceans, which is an autonomous and, miracle, uh, autonomous and sustainable mariculture. It's, it's robots growing fish. So, so I, I'm really excited about this new area. There's just tons of room. Uh, everyone needs to eat. We need to feed our planet. And there's tons of room of doing that in a more uh, sustainable and, and cost-conscious way. Sure. Yeah, definitely. That's... Uh... It's a very interesting domain, uh, you know, to look at in terms of venture capital. Definitely something I'm passionate about as well. And, and I mean, I think everyone is passionate to some extent about uh, conservation, or at least I would hope so. Um, one thing I think that 
uh, is at least something that's on my mind, you know, looking at venture capital is this, this disparity between the uh, two major domains of new aviation investments. I think uh, um, what I see is that you have half of it or maybe even like a majority of it, like 60, 70% of the new money is going into like VTOL, uh, you know, short range electric aircraft. And then you've got, you know, 30, 40% of it going into like hypersonic, supersonic aircraft, you know, uh, to make passenger aircraft travel, you know, a lot quicker, a lot more efficient to basically bring back the Concorde, um, you know, which uh, we have a whole, a whole lot of fans of in the aerospace department. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think about them? Because obviously we're still a, quite a bit of a ways out from either technology, but like uh, being a, an investor in Frontier Tech, uh, obviously you have to have some opinions regarding those two technologies. I'm curious where you got those numbers uh, because I, I, I think there's a, a third bucket where I spend most of my time on under 50 pound drones. Okay. Yeah. I guess, I guess I, um, I kind of totally factored drones out there. I don't even really like drones have been around for a while. I mean like super new, you know, like drones, autonomous drones have been, you know, or are kind of getting to be old news, but yeah, um, we can get, we can talk about that as well. Um, I, can, I, guess I'm, I can answer the original question you, you asked though, about what, sure. what I, am I spending time on, on eVTOL and supersonic airframes and aircrafts? And, and uh, I have some concerns around the technology and the regulation barriers that they need to overcome to, to come to fruition. So, right. so some examples, um, the technology of vertical takeoff and landing, the transition between vertical to horizontal flight, it has not been simulated in CFD and it's, it's difficult to do and, and, and needs to be developed. Um, and, and I know there's, Lots of companies uh, working on this, from Airbus's Bahana to Boeing and Larry Page's Kitty Hawk or Cora, or I think they just renamed Whisk, to mm-hmm. Joby, which is funded by um, Intel and now, gosh, I want to say Toyota. It's it's an OEM. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Um. So so that's on the technical side, but then what's even more concerning, in, in my opinion, is the regulation for the FAA to certify an entirely new airframe and propulsion system and perhaps the autonomy of it, I, I, I think the time horizon of that is is five to seven plus years. Mm-hmm. And and I look for a, a little shorter time horizon return. Um, therefore, uh, and, and, and by the way, I, I gave ETOL, VTOL examples, but that can be applied to, to supersonic as well. Um, you, need sure. to, you need to certify the new propulsion system. Uh, and, and, and that depends on, on regulatory entities or various countries, air navigation service providers or ANSPs. The FAA is obviously the United States. We have Transport Canada we, in Canada. We have the CAA in, in other regions. Every country has their own. So, so those things I, I need to uh, think a bit more. Um, and that's on the tech and regulation. And then ultimately, do the unit economics of the business model work? Are they able to, to make money from, from taking people from... In, in my area, San Jose to San Francisco, but in uh, Michigan's area, maybe Detroit to Ann Arbor. Like, can they, right. does it, how much does it cost and how much are people paying them that ultimately they have good margins? Sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, with these very new 
technologies, it can be difficult to, to make good investments. And, and that's certainly something that is a paradigm that you would face as an investor uh, in, in aerospace, specifically being, you know, uh, most of these new companies are going to be reliant on frontier technology and, and oftentimes unproven technology that will have a, a quite a bit of resources required to get it to the level where it's actually going to be um, worthy of revenue, uh, where the company is actually going to be profitable. Um, so definitely that's uh, a whole lot that was unpacked there in terms of, you know, what do you look for in a company? And obviously their time it takes to make revenue is a really important aspect of it. But also, you know, the how much more of the technology needs to get developed, you know, what are the hurdles there that they could face, you know, what are the uncertainties, um, but also the regulatory aspect of it. You know, not only does the technology face unknown and potentially unseen hurdles, but also regulations can uh, have that same issue, you know, and, and often the regulations are a lot more, you know, political and bureaucratic and slow moving. Um, so definitely that's something important to consider, um, you know, for anyone interested in, in the business of, you know, these new technologies, specifically with uh, supersonic passenger aircraft and VTOL um, and investing in them. Um, so, yeah, definitely super happy to have you share your perspectives there. Um, and also um, moving forward, the future of space, um, you know, obviously talk a little bit about aviation there and, and, and air space, um, but the future of space has um quite a bit of New Horizon uh, to cover as well. I'm curious what you are thinking in terms of like, what are going to be the big technologies that will revolutionize, you know, um, our careers, uh, students that are about to graduate, um, things to look out for, opportunities and concerns, um, you know, kind of your, your thoughts for the roadmap of the space industry. Before making predictions about what's next, I think it's important to look at historical trends and, and either technology or business catalysts that have gotten sure. the industry to where it is today. So so really quickly, I'll, I'll whiz through Moore's Law, which exponentially decreased the size and increased the power of commercial off-the-shelf components, right. has allowed historically entrepreneurs and students and, and people to throw commercial off-the-shelf sensors on, on CubeSats and throw it up into space. So, so the CubeSat was developed, the tiny launch vehicle like Rocket Lab was developed specifically for these sensors in low Earth orbit, for, for constellations uh, of these tiny satellites in LEO versus massive school bus size satellites in GEO uh, that take a lot more money and a lot longer <laughs> to make. Yeah. So, so now with, with so students that are now graduating school, have the opportunity to come up with incredibly unique sensors to put into space. Uh, historically, people really flocked to communication sensors, so so internet, uh, and cameras, Earth observation sensors or cameras. Um, and I just think there's this huge amount of territory and, and room for brilliant students to use their creative imagination and utilize space and put a different type of sensor up there that can benefit Earth. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely um, something that I've been looking out for. Um, and I guess, are there any ways that, that you can think, um, you know, are great? Hmm. I guess as far as pursuing, you know, opportunities in new technology, are there any avenues that you think are more effective, you know, um, whether it's getting involved extracurricularly or looking at companies that, um, you know, might work in one of these new technologies you're interested in, you know, when you identify, okay, there's this really cool new thing going on, you know, I really want to work in, in LEO, you know, satellite development, how would you, 
uh, best suggest to an interested graduate, you know, how to approach that, how to chase that sort of opportunity? Well, you're, you're studying at one of the best, uh, if not the best aerospace engineering department in the world. Uh, and, right. and specifically answering that question, I believe uh, Jamie Cutler's lab, it, it's, uh, it, it does that. You, you design, build, and launch a, a CubeSat. Uh, the, the uh, gosh, I was working on QB50, but that was a while ago. So I doubt it's still that, uh, that satellite. But uh, before that, it was Cadre, maybe? Uh, but I'm sure Professor uh, Cutler has has a new satellite that you could work on, get your hands dirty, and and do it to to really understand how it works and better prepare you for the hands-on aspect of when you eventually do it at a, for a company. Right, right. And uh, I guess another thing to add is uh, really every year it gets easier for students to start their own projects. And uh, there's more money for it as well. And all kinds of companies are looking for students to start projects. So you know, even if it's not, you know, LEO satellites that are interesting to you and it's something that isn't even around. Like, for example, I joined a project team that was specifically working on VTOL aircraft and they were a group of students that came in and didn't see a project team for VTOL. So they were like, all right, well, let's let's start it. And I think in the first year, Siemens and Ford gave them like $5,000 just because VTOL was hot that year. So, um, you know, definitely it's it's something that, you know, just with a little bit of passion and and uh, and, you know, uh, the buzzword of like VTOL and new technology, you know, you can really go a long way. Uh, that student superpower is definitely something that uh, no one should forget about. Um, definitely. And then also uh, alumni connections are super important, um, you know, kind of talking about how to pursue these sorts of opportunities in new tech. Um, I'm sure that if there's any new tech you're interested in, there's an alumni from U of M that's working in it or working around it that could maybe even introduce you to someone that you would need to talk to. So those are definitely all things to consider. You make a um, great so last point. Your .edu email is a superpower that everybody, everyone will respond to a student that just has a question and wants to ask for help. Uh, and I also recommend if you are reaching out, perhaps think of ways you can offer help in return. Telling that person about the new technology you learned about when you were building your VTOL project you were just telling about me about. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm confident if you were to reach out to any VTOL company or investor saying, I want to ask you and pick your brain a bunch of questions, and, and, and I'd love to tell you about the new propeller I designed as part of the VTOL project in Michigan, sure. you, will, you will get a very high response rate for that. Yeah, that's definitely like a, a very similar conversation to the one I have with Lamborghini. And, and getting a response from Lamborghini was like the craziest thing. So it's an Italian email and everything. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was literally just, I, I was working on this payload project. Uh, so one of our project teams under SEDS, we developed payloads for Blue Origin Rocket. I've told you a little bit about, um, and we'll probably cover that a little more on a, on a later podcast for those interested. The name is Blue, the acronym, our acronym is Blue for those who want to look on our website. Uh, but basically... Um, I had seen that Lamborghini had launched a project to do composites and materials research at the ISS. So I was like, all right, well, you know, our payload is, is in the domain of composites and materials research. Uh, and, and I was kind of thinking back to our conversation about this whole student superpower, you know, and I was like, well, if they might be interested in sponsoring us or at the very least talking to us, not only will that really get the team excited, but that will also, you know, lead to a potential collaboration. I mean, who knows what they're going to be looking at studying if they're sending, you know, carbon fiber panels onto the ISS, you know, for an automaker to take that step into an industry kind of so far outside of their domain. 
I was really open to the idea that they would work with a group of students and, and to think about, you know, what other steps would they take? Uh, what are the research they'd be involved in? And sure enough, they're interested enough to reply, um, which is really crazy, you know, to go from being like, oh, I'm a student, like, they don't care what I have to say, you know, I can't, I can't possibly be that informed to where I'd be, you know, valued in a in, in, uh, discussion um, on a professional level. But uh, then to realize that you actually can be and that there's so much that you can do and so many companies that you can get involved with. It's really great. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's get into questions. I know, Owen, you had those three. I think that test told you to pick out. Um, I think I might have one to add as well. Um, but if you want to go ahead and start with those. Yeah, sure. So for people that haven't listened to one of these podcasts before, basically SADS members are given the opportunity to submit questions probably like five days in advance uh, once we know like who the speaker is. And so these are questions that SADS students have submitted that they want us to ask to test. Uh, so one question I had was, Alex, are we allowed to say people's names? Did you explicitly? Or I don't want to compromise anyone's anonymity. I think we'll just go without names if we didn't announce it. So, okay. So I'm just going to read the questions. We'll leave the names out of it. Maybe in the future we'll do it. But anyways, the first question is, I just lost my internship and I'm certainly not alone. Many of us are graduating now into a pandemic and some of us will be looking for jobs in a potentially bad economy. What do you foresee job, job prospects looking like for the next graduating class of engineers in space industry and how can we prepare for this? I am so sorry to hear that. And, and I really wish I knew what was going to happen over the next several months and, and could give you guidance. Obviously, the impact on the economy is dramatic, but this is, this is so much different in underlying cause from prior recessions and, and prior economic struggles. Since once the virus is under control and, and there's an effective vaccine, things should get back to normal fairly quickly. So, so while the pandemic has a, a dramatic effect on the global economy, there are certainly parts of the economy that are doing quite well and, and will continue to do well. And, and aspects of, of technology, specifically space, are one of them. Very good answer. Um, so I'm going to combine kind of two similar questions that we're basically asking about, um, given the current situation and just in general, besides doing internships, what else can students do to kind of bolster their opportunities for getting jobs? What do companies like to see besides getting internships and what skills can students kind of pursue, especially during these times where we have a little bit of downtime and, uh, might be able to learn some new skills? Yeah. Alternative options for, for a summer are, are taking classes, uh, pursuing research in a lab on campus, working with student groups. Uh, Alexander mentioned the VTOL one. I, I was part of S3FL. I know Solar Car is a big one. Or serving your, your community by trying uh, to help as you can, even if that's, that's simply sheltering in place. Something perhaps to add to that other question in addition to this is losing your internship. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize that impact. It's, it's very traumatic. And I can't even imagine how I would feel if it were happening to me. But perhaps try to look at the longer term and, and, and that things will sort themselves out. You will have ample opportunity to pursue your career in space. And, and I am confident it will be fabulous. Okay. I believe we have one more kind of COVID-19 related question. Uh, this one speaks more to kind of the VC environment and startup environment. 
How do you see the pandemic impacting the growth and potential uh, for these companies? And how have you seen um, the effect on like startups of trying to be able to secure funding change as this uh, pandemic hits? I'll answer them in twofold. And please remind me if I forget the second part. So in, in Bessemer's 100-year history, three of our best investments uh, by, by our firm came out of, of difficult years. Twilio, Shopify, and Pinterest all emerged after the 08 crisis. And, and there is ample historical precedent that suggests great companies are often forged during the, the waning part of incredible upheaval. So, so that's the, the positive. Um, to answer your first question directly about how, how companies are, are dealing with this, there's three categories of businesses in, in a post-COVID world. The good news uh, is that there's a tiny segment of companies that are actually doing quite well like video games and, and remote learning companies due to people spending time at their homes with limited entertainment options. The second category, um, because the first is, is a relatively small, is about 90%. Uh, the second category is about 90% of businesses that will take a significant hit because of the economic downturn. Um, customers will, will uh, cancel. They'll look for ways to exit. Decisions to buy will be pushed to 2020, sorry, they'll be pushed to 2021, and 2020 will be the lost year for, for many companies. Um, it matters less what happens during this year as long as you can survive with sufficient resources to compete in 2021. So, so companies uh, need to take the necessary actions now, like reducing your burn and, and maintaining as much dry powder so that you can, you can survive this time and attack when it passes. And lastly, there's, there's a third category, and this is the unluckiest, where, where these industries are taking a direct hit because of coronavirus. Hotels, restaurants, travel, live events, conferences, all of those businesses have seen revenue drops from 85 to 100%. So, so that, uh, that last bucket is, is, the most, is feeling the most pain from uh, COVID-19. Uh, Owen, please remind me the second. Um, I mean, the second part was kind of just, you already pretty much answered it, but we were just talking about how like actually startups are, are we seeing like startups having um, funds kind of canceled or are we seeing like, you know, talks that were in progress for startups kind of being postponed because of this pandemic, um, which I think you already partially answered, but if you have anything to add. Uh, for, for startups that are raising right now, definitely re-engage with investors you've met with in the past because it's really hard to start a new relationship and pitch to an investor you haven't met and, and pitched to before. So we uh, are definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm still taking uh, new deal meetings and, and hope to invest in the next wave of amazing companies that come out of, out of this recession. Um, but but it's, it's easier to pick back off, pick back up a conversation that I had perhaps a year ago during their previous round for this round. That makes sense. Um, Alex, do you want to ask your question? I have one as well, and I think that pretty much covers most of the student questions. Alex, um, do you want to ask yours? I, I actually, my question kind of was already answered, um, so you can kind of go ahead with yours, and I can think of if there's anything else that I want to to go ahead with. For sure. Um, so yeah. Tess, I'm wondering if you could basically outline, uh, a lot of our students are you know, involved in entrepreneurship, but some of them don't have a, a great idea. I'm wondering if you could just talk through uh, basically how companies can secure funding, the different types, such as, you know, debt and equity, 
And then also what stages you look at. So you personally, when you're looking to invest, are you looking at, you know, seed round, series A, series B, and kind of just give everyone a, a very brief overview of what the startup world looks like? Absolutely. So like I said, only 2% of companies are VC backed. It is a very small asset class that looks for what we call is hockey stick growth. We look for exponential increase in revenue where the first year you quadruple and then triple and then double your revenue. You grow from zero to three to 12 to 25 and then 30. I mean, it is over the course of four years. That's crazy. It's, it's, we, we really look for, uh, what we call unicorn, but I guess in, in this, uh, in, for this audience, rocket ship growth. So there are so many alternative sources of funding for your company. You, you have an idea and you think it's fabulous. How can you get money to grow that idea? The number one best way is to bootstrap, which basically means you use your customer's money that they're giving you for your product. Uh, and, and, and that is the single best way to grow your business. However, it, it, it takes time to uh, get customer money. And what if you're a space company where you need to launch your satellite into space before giving your customers that data? That takes money to, to launch that satellite into space. So uh, another way is, is uh, a bank debt or loan. Uh, what's great about that is you can use the money however. Uh, the, the negative though is you've got to pay that back usually with interest. So, so you got to pay back more than let's say the two million you took. Uh, another uh, is is government grants or, or subsidies. Um, those you don't have to pay back, but sometimes it, they control what you can or can't spend that money on. So, so if you're not a VC backable company, there's alternatives. Even if you are a VC backable company, most if not all of my companies ha use bank debt and government grants. Grants and then bootstrap, they use their customer revenue. So, so you can pick and choose or you can aggregate all of the types. Now, the second question you asked is, is uh, are what are the stages? How does one invest? And, and the rounds go, and I'll, I'll use a uh, real world example. Larry and Sergey, two dudes, were, were, they came up with this idea to create a search engine. So they, uh, they used their own money to feed themselves while they started coding. And six months into it, they realized like, hey, the search engine thing, it's, it's, I see, we see something here, but we need more money because we can't feed ourselves and pay for the garage we're working out of, who knows. So they, uh, they call up their friends and their family and the friends and family give them, let's say 10, 20,000 each. And they raise maybe 60,000 in what's called a friend and family round. And that lasts them another six months to a year eating ramen, maybe occasionally they'll order pizza. The year goes by. And, and they need more money. So that is when they, they reach out to angel investors, which, uh, who are individuals who are investing their own money, and usually they've got a lot of it, so they can make investments 100 to 300 plus thousand dollars, and, and that's their angel round. At this time, sometimes uh, early companies go through an accelerator or an incubator. Very famous ones are Y Combinator, 500 Startups, Plug and Play. 
Those are all of the steps before you talk to a venture capitalist, before you talk to an institutional investor like myself, and you raise a seed round, then a series A, a series B, a series D, you continue. Uh, finishing this example, uh, Larry and Sergey very, very quickly named the company Google, and they went to a bunch of VCs, and everyone now knows uh, what that company is. But it's a really just tangible, easy example uh, that demonstrates First, the hockey stick growth that VC companies hopefully uh, will demonstrate, but uh, how, how to get started. Thanks. I think that, that paints a really good picture of kind of the, uh, the process that, you know, VCs are involved in. Alex, did you think of your question? So, well, so I, um, I was thinking about how to phrase it in a way that wasn't kind of covered in, because really it was kind of going on like, what do you do when you've invested so much of your emotional energy in, in a specific outcome, right? And um, really, the, the kind of immediate example is like, okay, this summer, most of us have invested our energy into an internship, and we're really looking forward to it and making plans around it. Um, you know, and then to kind of have that pulled out from under you, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and, and you gave a little bit of uh, suggestions there. But I guess what I want to phrase is anything that you think has been helpful to you um, you know, in times where you have invested, you know, your energy into an outcome and had that not work out for you, um, you know, any any stories you can share, anything that helped you, um, you know, that might help some of our listeners and some of our viewers, you know, kind of stay in good spirits during this time. Yeah. If it provides any relief, no, nobody, uh, no employer, no one looking at your resume is going to judge you for the summer of 2020. Everybody will realize this is this is a throwaway summer, and and get a job that will make you some money if 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 you have student loans or, or debt to pay off. I mean, take the summer and and and, and do what's best for you. And then I couldn't imagine uh, getting the rug pulled out from under you. And I, I think this will be an interesting uh, opportunity and a fabulous opportunity to to test your resilience and your ability to to get back up and and uh, either apply elsewhere or or find alternative solution and and while while COVID-19 has never happened before so so I haven't had uh, I haven't personally experienced a situation where where an offer was rescinded due to a pandemic I've absolutely had had a not got the opportunity or, or something I wanted or or haven't uh, or, or something didn't go the way I was expecting. And and honestly, I look back on every single one of those times and I am so grateful it happened that way because either something else or I wouldn't have ended where I was now. So so I think this perhaps try to I took those opportunities as as personal growth to to Rejection sucks, or, or, or in not going your way is is hard. Um, but learning how to deal with it and determining, uh, I, I love this. One of my favorite professors, Tina Seelig at Stanford, says, "What is your bottom? When you fall, what is your rock bottom? Is it is it rubber and you you jump right back up? Is it shards of glass where it's just painful the entire way down? Maybe it's cement and you get stuck there. So this is an opportunity to find out." what it is, and what do you want to change it? And I recommend rubber. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the time to bounce back. Uh, I appreciate ending on that note. Uh, definitely, it's uh, going to give a lot of people uh, something to look forward to. And, um, you know, I appreciate you uh, giving us your time to come on the call. I'm really glad that you were interested to talk to us. Um, you know, obviously, we're still very young, but I am really looking forward to growing the program out. 
um, you know, kind of share new topics with engineers and kind of help them understand, you know, all the options and, and opportunities that are available to them. Thank you so much for, for asking me to join and for having such insightful questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, great. Well, uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to talk again soon and we can catch up a little more. Um, but then other than that, Owen, if there's nothing else you had to add. Um, I think that about wraps it up for me. Tess, what's one takeaway you want for listeners to kind of come away with at the end here? I would love for the listeners who are hopefully studying something that they're incredibly passionate about to know that space is open for business and that they will have a very long and successful career in the field post the little hiccup of the current situation. That concludes episode five. Thank you for listening. We want to thank Tess once again for joining the show and we will see you next episode.